0: This is a whole Observatory podcast.
1: Five, four, three, two, one. Zero. Welcome to Star Stuff. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Star Stuff. Today, we're going to talk about exoplanets and science communications. Uh, today, we are joined by Star Stuff frequent guest Maddie Mooney. Hello. And our special guest all the way from the University of Southern Queensland in sunny Australia, Jake Clark.
2: G'day, everyone. How are we?
1: (laughs) We're doing great. Um, So I'm going to start off with a quick bio of you and uh, then we'll get into the questions. So uh, Jake is using machine learning to help predict what stars host exoplanets. And in particular, stars that are currently being observed by NASA's new planet finding mission, TESS, for his Ph.D., his other research interests are hunting for exoplanets using Queensland's very own planet finding telescope array, Minerva Australis, recalibrating the orbital parameters of known planetary systems, and determining the chemical and geological compositions of large rocky and small gassy worlds known as super-Earths. Jake is also uh, on a bunch of podcasts, radio shows. Uh, he's very large advocate for science communication, which of course we. At lowell observatory hold near and dear to us so yeah welcome jake
2: thank you so much for having me that was super flattering and yeah my my egos boosted a little bit (laughs) (laughs) good awesome
1: (laughs) we'll go ahead and start uh asking what is your background
2: yeah, that's an awesome question. Um, and so, I guess as a kid, um, I loved space. And uh, the only, well, one of the very few Australian astronauts that have ever been um, was actually from my hometown. Uh, oh, in, uh, here in Adelaide. And so, when I was a when I was a kid, I really looked up to to him uh, quite quite literally, actually. Uh, he was a part of the <laughs> international space station and I remember oh, wow. I would, uh, um, wake up my parents at obscene hours of the night to, uh, wave, wave to him as he went past. I mean, obviously at, at <laughs> night, you know, you can't really see the space station. It's, you know, you can really only see it during uh, sunset or sunrise, just in terms of the angles of, mm-hmm. of, uh, of the sun and the the way that the light sort of reflects off the space station. But I didn't know that. And uh, I felt so sorry for my dad who I'd wake up, <laughs> the poor the poor beggar. Uh, he uh, did shift work and still does actually. And, uh, yeah, so I'd wake him up at obscene, obscene hours of the night and I didn't really grow up in the most safe uh, neighborhood either. So <sighs> I must, must have startled him <laughs> something crying. <laughs> 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 and he'd uh, he be like, hey, dad, I want to say g'day to Andy. Um, and so, yeah, we would go into the backyard and he'd I don't know, point out some random star and be like, there, there he is. And I'd wave and go back to bed. Um, and, yeah, I guess my love for, for uh, space and astronomy sort of started from there. And I actually started a Bachelor of Science in Space Science and Astrophysics down in Adelaide. Um, and did that and thought, this is amazing. And in particular, um, we – I think this was super bougie. Um, (laughs) Everyone who got to study a Bachelor of Science that year got a free iPad. And that was like the first-gen iPad. So everyone's like, oh, my God, this is amazing. Hmm. And um, my – one of our lecturers was like, hey, look, there's all these cool apps you can download and there's this uh, app – all about exoplanets. And I'm thinking, wow, this is so so cool. And back then, I think there was only about 500 odd exoplanets that were discovered at that point. And it was great because I didn't actually have internet at home at that point. Um mm-hmm. and I would have to wait until I get into uni every day to uh to refresh the app and get the notifications being like hey look we've discovered a new new planet and i click on it and i'd see how big big it is compared to like earth or jupiter and i used to see the little like discovered by and it have like their last names so i'm thinking this is so bloody cool like one day i hope to be a part of this and actually help to discover worlds beyond our own solar system um however so i did my bachelor's and then did my honors in actually in atmospheric physics, which was absolutely wild. Um, I was looking at LIDARs and LIDARs are basically just lasers that we can use to measure all types of awesome properties. And for what I was researching, I was looking at the types of different clouds that form in Antarctica, um, particularly the sort of clouds that destroy ozone um, so trying to de- determine what types of these clouds form and evolve uh, through the through the Antarctic winter and spring and then I was like look I'm done with research in academia I don't think I can do this anymore and had a massive gap year just working in restaurants and bars across Adelaide and was like mm, actually I do want to get back i want to get back into this and then so i saw an ad on facebook of all places and it was and it said run away and join the circus the science circus and it was a master's in science communication uh with the australian national uh university and the national center for science and technology here in australia and i'm like oh wow that sounds amazing so (laughs) i applied for that just like, all right, we'll see what happens, and I got in, um, and so that was amazing. I got to tour around different parts of Australia, doing science shows for um, mostly high school and uh, elementary students, which was absolutely wild. And to go into like the farthest reaching, remote Indigenous communities in Australia was just absolutely incredible and those moments i'll never forget for the rest of my life and then i went back and did my phd which i've just finished just then so yeah it's been a very very long been a massive journey but uh here i am
0: This would be a great time for me to ask the question, um, what was it like getting your master's in science communication? Because that's what we have laid out on our really nice little document here. However, <laughs> I'm going to throw a wrench directly into that because I have an English degree and I don't know what sciencey people are talking about most of the time. So I need you to explain what is machine learning? <laughs> I wasn't yeah. going to let you guys just gloss over that one. <laughs> that's fair.
2: <laughs> no, that's that's an excellent question. And so... Machine learning is all about sort of predictability, um, mm-hmm. and so we humans are fantastic at trying to find patterns in in all types of things. I mean, and it's very much sort of a survival mechanism. Mm-hmm. You can imagine when you go camping and you hear a noise and look out of your tent, and you're like, you're trying to make um, trying to make shapes out of the different. <laughs> Dark patches of the shrubs, and like, hey, is that an enemy? And it's like, no, it's just. It turns out it's just a rabbit. Like, just go back to bed, sort of thing. Um, yeah.
0: <laughs> oh, I mean, I, I instantly see the most terrifying thing I possibly can, and it does not make me relax. So I don't know if that's like a universal human thing, but oh, it is. Yeah, a hundred percent.
2: hundred percent. And so, for for us, especially with astronomy the amount of data that we're dealing with on a daily basis is outrageous. Um, Especially, I mean, the sort of project that I've been involved with for my PhD was the Galar survey. And um, a Galar is a bird here in Australia. It's a beautiful, beautiful bird. And um, actually most of our surveys down here in Australia are all named after some type of animal, which is wild. I um, mean,
0: mm-hmm. you guys have some crazy animals over
2: there. We do, and they're like, all out king, to get kangaroos?
0: you. Kangaroos? <laughs> Who came up with that? That's kangaroos <laughs> are ridiculous.
2: <laughs> they're, they're wild, and the fact that they can they can only hop forwards and not backwards. That's that. Wait, awesome. really? Oh, yeah, yeah. So Australia's oh, yeah. um, hang on. This is a, this is an aside, but a cool aside. So Australia's yeah. two emblems are kangaroos and emus, and mm-hmm. the reason why um why that's the case is that they can only walk due to the way that the knees um, have evolved is that they can only walk forwards and not backwards. And so mm. it's a sign of, like, being okay. a progressive nation. That's
0: cool. Uh, oh, cool. Yeah. Also, yeah. I don't know if you're – I'm just assuming you're an expert on this as an Australian, but can we bring <coughs> you back for a future episode to talk about the Emu War?
2: The, oh, my God. No, that, that <laughs> is uh, i, I – I'm sorry, but uh, I have to go now. <laughs> <laughs> Wait. <laughs> No, we we don't we don't discuss the emu war here. No, talk that's about it. it. It's I only learned about that a couple of How years. How do
0: you ago. not talk about that?
2: And it was It's so funny. Anyways,
1: I'm sorry. I totally I'm, sorry, I'm totally that's derailing a, the conversation. No, 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 no.
2: That's that's fine. Um and so sorry, going back to patterns and so
1: yeah
2: <laughs> and machine learning. And yeah, so I've been working with Galah and uh so it's A spectroscopic uh, survey, meaning that we get the light from the star and we split it up into the the spectrum. And what's really cool about that is we can analyze not only the physical properties of the stars, but also the chemical properties. And Mm. we almost, I think we're about 900,000 stars that we've observed uh, through Galar now. And I think there's about 300 different properties that we're Mm. able to ascertain. Um,
0: Oh, sorry. So is this like, I'm just trying to make sense of this in, again, my non-scientific brain, but... So it's like the way that humans identify patterns, but it's like an AI type of thing.
2: Yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry. I'm okay. I'm, I'm, I'm very long winded. Sorry. Uh, no, no, no worries. No worries.
0: <laughs> and, I mean, it, it makes sense. I almost have it together
2: in my brain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so um, there's just a lot of information that it takes a lot of time for us to be able to obtain. And mm-hmm. so what we can do is we can look at the different patterns within, or you know, some of us humans we can also be very biased in terms of those patterns or sometimes we can't even see those patterns um, and mm-hmm. so that's where machine learning can kick in and we can use what's known as a training set um, when what's uh we can all we can either call it as supervised or unsupervised meaning that there's a human that's going okay these are the type of classes that you're trying to train upon for example you might for a very uh for example temperature you could go okay well this star is known to have a temperature of 6,000 Kelvin. And then this one's known as 7,000 Kelvin. And then you sit there and you tell the machine what the what the temperature is. And then you have this whole bunch of like, I don't know, tens of thousands of them afterwards. And you chuck it at them, chuck it at the machine learning and go, all right, go off and tell me what the temperature is. And then you can use those, you can use models to then, you know, make sure and benchmark those temperatures and go, okay, did the machine learning get that right or it didn't? Um, Hmm. And yeah, so there's all types of machine learning that you can use as well. I have been using a sort of a a sorting method known um, that's basically a ranking system of of thinking about, okay, these are the types of planets that are known to host exoplanets. So if this is what their properties are, then what is the most important features of of those of those stars um because you know we have a general gist of what's important to uh create planets but uh these it turns out with this research that that might be changing which is kind of cool um and and yeah so i mean and you don't have to use it for planets either you can use it for all kinds of crazy crazy things
1: backtracking a little bit uh, talking about your background I did want to ask you what it was like getting your master's in science communication because I've, I've heard about those kinds of programs and like obviously I'm really into science communication you know seeing as it's my job um, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, what was it like getting like a formal education in that
2: it was the best decision of my life and I wouldn't be the person nor the person professional that I am with, without it. Um, and it was such an incredibly, it was such an incredible ride. And um, I think to work with Questacon, so Questacon is the National Science and Technology Center here in Australia. It's like the the la creme of the creme of outreach here in Australia. And then with the Australian National University, we have the Center for the Public Awareness of Science and it was actually the first formal science communication research center in the world. Wow. Um, and so with we being Australia been sort of at the forefront of science communication for for a while now. And uh, what was great in that masters is the fact that it's sort of a a sprinkling of of science communication outreach. I mean a lot of it our field Field work in in bunny ears was you know going around doing this doing this tour tour called the Questacon Science Circus, um, and it's mainly focused at regional and and remote areas here in Australia. And if you look at a big massive map of Australia, about in the centre, and you sort of spread outwards, about ninety five percent of the actual space in Australia is occupied by about 2% of the Australian population. Um, So uh, you two would know being in the middle of Arizona, as soon as you get out of Flagstaff, things can get pretty pretty isolated pretty quickly. Um, Mm -hmm. And so the, the access to opportunities is very limited and that is something that I sort of learnt within that program is the fact that there's such a divide between the haves. I mean, and and this is someone also coming from a low socioeconomic background um, and I sort of knew that these sort of opportunities can be few and far between. Um, but it's something that I sort of now am uh, more focused on and saying that I want to keep on going and continuing on with with my life is to provide opportunities to people that don't necessarily get to them. And I think it's this whole, attitude, uh, this whole mantra of you can't be what you can't see. And mm. for a lot of these communities, you know, you just sort of broken in a cycle of either unemployment or um, low skilled jobs. And the fact that you can go into a community and present some really cool science communication and I, as you as you know, I guess you can break down science communication in two forms. There's sort of knowledge-based science communication and there's skill-based. And yeah. I'm a really big advocate for uh, skill-based. I think you can just – knowledge is awesome. And I think if you can wrap that knowledge around, this, uh, around the skill, that's even better. But just talking to people for the sake of talking to people about facts is – I think that you can, there's a lot more power there that you can have with with skill-based psychom, and so that's what I sort of learned uh, from. I learned a lot actually about grant, uh, grant writing uh, within my masters as well, and so that's a huge, especially in in academia and in research. That's such a huge uh, feather in your cap, right? Because that a lot of what we do in academia is just write grants to keep keep yeah. our jobs going. <laughs> Um, And it was actually a grant for uh, here in Australia, we have National Science Week. And so it was to create an event for National Science Week and to run a pilot. And at the end of our actual assignment was to create the actual grant application to get these grants to actually do these events, Um, which was amazing because at the end of the day, you could submit your assignment and get some feedback on it and then use that feedback to then submit the actual application for this national science week event and yeah so it's just like real like real life i guess studying a physics degree the sort of skills that you can get seem a little bit abstract at first and the the skills that are developed during my science communication degree were a lot more useful and a lot more sort of people focused i guess um, and more sort of softer skills, um, and I guess also just talking to different audiences as well. And as researchers, I think researchers have can sometimes have a very hard time to uh, disseminate their research across different audiences, and don't realize that their audiences might ha- might not have the prior understanding that they do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's about yeah. Just trying to break things down and not not dumb things down, but you know, I think what I learned most importantly out of this masters was narratives, narratives and storytelling. Um, and storytelling is such a huge part of who we are as a civilization, and storytelling has been the sto- the driving force be- behind us learning for for eons since we got out of the caves, right? And what I really loved, actually going back to you, Haley, was when I was visiting the Lowell Observatory and you were talking about the stars and um, how different civilizations and cultures looked at the stars. Every time I look up now, I think of Valhalla. Um, and <laughs> Yes, good. <laughs> and that's really powerful, right? Like it was just this one tiny interaction and that has sort of changed my viewpoint of, of the world, and so we know how powerful uh, these these interactions can be. And so, yeah, sorry, that was also very long winded, but that's that's what <laughs> I learned from my uh, my degree.
1: Yeah, no, yeah, worries. Haley, I've, and- I've
0: always said your constellation tours are so great. Before she and I were really friends, I would just like I don't I think I saw her at like someone's birthday party or something, and I was like, yeah. I love your constellation tours, like. <laughs> They're amazing. So it was like the first thing I said to you outside of work and you're just like, "Thanks." I was like, "Can you do one <laughs> right now?" <laughs> My question for you is, what is your PhD program of study?
2: I was looking at the chemical compositions of of stars, so using this huge survey Um, known as galah i was uh, particularly interested in not only the physical properties but also the chemical properties of tens of thousands of of stars and i guess the biggest thing i produced from my phd is known as the galah test catalog now nasa has a planet finding mission that's currently going on right now it launched in 2018 known as the transiting exoplanet survey satellite And so what's amazing about this spacecraft is it's an all sky survey. So it's scouring the entire sky, hunting for nearby planets. And my PhD was to curate a catalog of stars in the Southern sky to help test not only when you, so if you were to discover a planet around one of these stars, my catalog has all the information there in terms of how big the star is and how massive the star is because we infer the planets based upon the behavior that they imp- how they influence their own stars, and so you need this the, you need the stellar properties in order to better understand the planetary properties, and you can't you don't you don't know the planet's mass or the planet's size without the size or the relative size of this of the of its star, um, and so that's what the that's what that catalog contains. It also contains the habitable zones for all these stars. It contains um, also the chemical abundances. And what's really awesome about the chemical abundances of stars, um, and the chemical abundances are just the amount of stuff within within a stellar within the stellar surface. Um, and so, in particular, iron, magnesium, silicon um, are huge. Uh, indicators to help us disentangle the chemical and geological makeup of rocky worlds known as super earths because unfortunately with current models you can have all types of weird and wonderful compositions for a planet given a certain mass and radius and so that is known sort of a degeneracy when you can't really disentangle uh, the composition however using these chemical abundances you actually can and so my catalog has about fifty thousand stars that are being observed by TESS, and uh, can be used to sort of disentangle that's uh that if you have the mass and radius of that planet and you also have those chemical compositions you can actually determine what these planets are likely to be made out of and instead of being like oh it could be a rocky world or um, it could be a gaseous world. You can go, okay, this planet would have a mantle that consists of these uh, geolog- geological elements. Um, it would have a water layer or an ice layer that's this thick and its atmosphere would sort of be this deep. Um, and so that's the sort of analysis that you can do just by knowing the composition, the physical and chemical compositions of Uh, sorry, the physical and chemical properties of these stars. So that's what I was doing as a, that's sort of the big thing that came out of my PhD. Um, And I also helped to discover about 20 odd different planets and the machine learning stuff was actually really late um, and is something that I'm sort of still working on uh, right now. So it's sort of been a sort of splattering of, of work, but I guess you can distill it down to, Know the star, know the planet. If you can better understand the properties of the stars that host these planets, then you can better understand the actual planets themselves.
0: Here's another question. What's the difference between a planet and an exoplanet?
2: Yeah, that's an awesome question. Um, And so a planet is... Any so there's three, so everyone who's listening, I know LOL has a very special place for Pluto. So yes. I have to sort of dance around this, right? I don't wanna I don't wanna hurt, you can hurt anyone. Say, oh.
1: You can say what you want. We've heard it all.
2: <laughs> you know, what's really frustrating is the fact that like it's its own class. Like it's so special yeah. now that we had to create an like a different planetary body class for pluto and i think that's even cooler than it being a planet to be honest
1: that's so what I, I say i am on my <laughs> way
0: to australia right now to beat you up no i'm just kidding
2: <laughs> <laughs> i'll give you my address now
0: <laughs> no need i already traced. <laughs> I already got it <laughs> no actually i mean I'm, that's that's far from the most upsetting take about pluto we've heard so mm. no i think you're right and um Actually, I posted a silly little TikTok on our TikTok channel because we're cool at yeah! But it was basically just talking about how Pluto got demoted, which isn't isn't really true. It was more just like a shift in the naming. Mm -hmm. But, you know, everyone everyone feels very strongly about Pluto. So it, it, it was a demotion. Well, not everyone. Some people are like, relax, but we're not we're not those people. Um, (laughs) but someone commented and I really liked it. They said he didn't get demoted. He just got switched into a different department and he's doing a great job. And I was like, oh,
2: I love that actually. And that's exactly right. Like the fact that there's such a huge spectrum of different astronomical bodies out there. And it's the fact, it's the same thing here in. In our everyday lives, like, we know now that we've been sticking gender into two very distinct boxes for Mm -hmm. a long time and go, oh, actually, that's not quite right. We actually have a spectrum. Oh, my God. Um, And very (laughs) similarly, like, with astronomical bodies, there's such a huge spectrum. And we try and put things into boxes and we learn more and more about things. We go, actually, hang on a sec, that box actually needs to be broken up into different boxes. And there's different types of awesome little, little bodies in here. And that's where Pluto, the story of Pluto comes in. Um, but in terms of a planet, so you need to be three things to be a planet here in our solar system. And that is, you need to be round, you need to orbit the sun, and you need to be the biggest object in your vicinity. Um, and you would think that, I mean, and that last one, as we know, listening from the Lowell Observatory is very very controversial um, and you would think that we would have some sort of better definite or we'd have sort of a, a very similar situation for exoplanets and it turns out not really. We The only solid definition that we have for an exoplanet is any object that's outside of our solar system that weighs less than 13 times that of Jupiter. So, if you weigh less than 13 times of the 13 jupiter masses then you're considered an exoplanet. And a lot of the exoplanet discoveries are actually looking at the size of planets. And it turns out that when you get to the size of Jupiter and to smaller and to smaller stars, they're roughly about the same size. And so when you start stacking more mass onto an object, it doesn't not it doesn't necessarily get bigger when you start getting to the, that regime between Jupiter and um small red dwarf stars it's only when you start getting to sort of your um uh case and beyond that the size starts to starts to increase and so we know that at the point of 13 jupiter masses uh deuterium starts to sort of fuse within the within the core of a or you know uh, that starts to happen within the core of a of a body and so that's when you sort of transition over to um, brown dwarfs. and so we go from brown dwarfs uh, which is the regime between planets and and stars and uh, so that you know no one talks about brown dwarfs and being like you know what they should be planets or they should be stars. they have their own little category just as Pluto has his and uh, Pluto and Ceres and Maki Meki and all the other and Aries um, and all the amazing dwarf planets.
0: I love that. Yeah. I always wonder, like, you know, we all, we dream of this grand future where you can just hop between planets, like you're taking an airplane or like the Star oh, Wars universe. Like, do you think in Star Wars, they sat around arguing over like whose home planet was a planet or not? Or like, I, I feel like they don't have time for that. You no, know?
2: no. And I think it's, it's important to think about, for example, um, we have moons in our solar system that are larger than planets. Right um and this
0: doesn't make sense <laughs> yeah
2: <laughs> and so when you when you go to that when you think about that you think okay well then should those moons be planets it's like well no because they're orbiting the likes of Saturn and and jupiter and so i like to just think of when you get to that sort of tearing between uh, straws of you know dwarf planets and if it's a solid or a gaseous surface uh, or gaseous body I like to think of them just as, as worlds and you know mm. you can think of the moon as a, as a world um, and you can think of Ganymede and Enceladus as as different worlds and yeah I, I think that's what the, multi, the Star Wars universe may be, be thinking about is all these little tiny worlds to explore that might be orbiting around larger ones
1: So now that we've talked about the difference between exoplanets versus planets, uh, what are the different ways that one can search for exoplanets?
2: That's another really awesome question. Um, And so there's several ways you can find planets, but the two main ways that we find them is uh, one of the biggest ones, I think about more than two-thirds of the planets that we've discovered so far. And I was saying before, when I was in my undergrad, there no, only 500 planets. Well, we just ticked over to 5,000 only a couple of months ago, and that's thanks largely to two huge NASA missions, uh, with the Kepler mission and uh, now with with TESS. And those two spacecraft look at the shadows that planets cast on their host star. So if you are looking at sort of a a light. In front of you, like a lamp, and you have sort of a fly orbiting, or sorry, fly swarming around it. Then you'll notice the sort of shadow that the fly sort of imparts on on the light, right? And you go, "Oh, the this, the room just got a little bit dimmer." Um, and if we, if you think about the fly being as it being a planet and the light being a star, as if we're looking through our line of sight and we see. Um, a sort of a dip in that starlight that's typically because of a planet sort of orbiting across the face of that star and blocking out a bit of that starlight and if we are seeing sort of periodic or and or repeating behavior in that uh, we'll go off and investigate and make sure that that is a uh, that that is a planet and so that's known as the transit method And so the ways that which we can confirm that it is a planet, I mean, that is a confirmation method within itself. And with that method, we can work out the size of a planet, you know, the bigger the dip in that starlight, the bigger the planet. Um, However, on the ground, we use a method known as radial velocity, or I like to think of it as, as star wobbles. And so if you can imagine yourself on a seesaw with a gigantic African elephant, um, where would you be on that seesaw? Would you be down on the ground or would you have your legs kicking up in the air?
0: I think you'd be somewhere in the stratosphere by that point. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, I should preface that. Well, you should you should be strapped in because, yeah, yeah, you would probably be in the stratosphere. I mean, I guess
0: it depends on how much force the elephant sits down with, but we would probably be up. <laughs> that's so true.
2: <laughs> yeah, so you you would be up. And that's that's because the elephant is a lot heavier than you. However, what is neat is that we often think of a seesaw. I mean, seesaws are typically fixed, right? And it sort of balances upon this middle point uh, known as a fulcrum. However, if you move that fulcrum towards the elephant, what will start to happen is that the beam will start to come down and there'll be a point more or less nearest to the elephant that you'll balance out completely. And that point there is known as the center of mass of of the system between you and the elephant. Hmm. And so that point there is actually the point if you were to spin, if you were to spin the seesaw, you would actually orbit around that central point. As you would orbit that point, so would the so would the elephant. And that's what happens with planetary systems. We don't actually orbit around the sun. I mean, we do to an extent, but... The sun and the planets orbit around a central point in the solar system known as the center of mass. And that just so happens be- because the sun, 99% of the mass of the solar system is contained within the sun, right? It's yeah. a lot closer to the sun, and the sun takes that time to do that sort of wobble around, basically around itself. And I for, did you know. Not-
0: sorry I did not know the Sun was that big and now I'm having an existential existential crisis oh I'm yeah. sorry I'm sorry no just it's just... So, no that's what <laughs> that's that's what this job is all about I oh, yeah. since I first set foot on Mars Hill my brain is just exploding constantly it's great
2: <laughs> well huh. hopefully you can have a sense of comfort knowing that you are the universe
1: oh yeah we're all made of star stuff I mean yeah That's our podcast name. Universe.
2: And so just as the sun sort of – and the Earth sort of orbits around that point, so does the sun. And we can actually see those stars wobbling out there in in space um, by the starlight that we receive from, from those stars. And if that star is moving towards us, that starlight gets a little bit bluer. And if that star is moving away from us, it gets a little bit redder. And so we can see that periodic shift again, moving backwards and forwards as it orbits around that that central point of that planetary system. And the bigger the wobble, the more massive the planet, the smaller the wobble, the less massive the planet. And so that's what I've been mainly using to hunt for exoplanets is using a combination of both the data that we're getting from from tests and also the data that we're getting from our own observatory minerva australis which was literally like a 15 minute drive from where i was living doing my phd so it was wow to just go down set it all up um do some observing and then come back home and uh yeah, yeah, it's absolutely truly amazing experience. But yeah, so, the, and what's amazing about those two main methods is that if you get the mass and the size of the planet, then you can get its density. Uh, and then you can work out roughly what those planets are made out of. You know, is it made out of Plato? Is it made out of rocks? Yeah. Is, it made, is it a gaseous planet? Um, and that's when those chemical abundances can come along and really help you determine the composition of. Of rocky worlds, and there are other methods that we use. Um, however, they're not as populous. I mean, the radial velocity and transit method would account for, I would say, about ninety-five percent of discoveries to date, and so the rest are sort of uh, awesome. And I think they'll sort of come in. They've sort of. I mean, each method has pros and cons, um, and I think astrometry, which is looking at the actual wobble of the stars in space will become um a, i think a lot of plants will actually be found with that method thanks to gaia and uh the yeah. next gaia data release which is due at the end of this year i believe mm. um and so we'll be able to sort of find some really cool planets in that space and i think also a lot of these i mean these methods sort of look at different populations and we're sort of biased towards different populations of of planets as well and so with the different methods we can sort of fill in the gaps and find a whole spectrum of planets and not just a certain type
1: and i'm gonna plug something really quick right here uh by the time this episode airs I believe we will be doing an exoplanets talk at Lowell. So we'll be talking about these different methods and talking about uh, some cool exoplanets that have been found. So if any of our listeners out there are near Lowell Observatory or planning to come to Flagstaff, you should come check it out.
2: That sounds amazing. Do Do you know who you have?
1: Um, so it's going to be a regular talk. The educators are going to do it every
2: Oh, night. awesome. 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 That's yeah. amazing. Go, go up there. It's amazing. And when then you have like awesome science communicators like Haley. It's, it's a real treat.
1: <laughs> Thank you. So Maddie has an interesting
0: question for I you. Have a deep Ooh. burning question that I think Get we me. probably ask everyone who comes on this podcast in some form. Oh, yeah. How do you feel about aliens?
2: That's a great question. <laughs> uh, I had to, so the whole reason why I was up to, up at Lowell is I was doing my Fulbright over in America and which was on this sort of machine learning stuff. And just before I left, I'm like, All right, I want to do a road trip. And then I went up to, I was like, i got to do the grand Canyon. And then Lowell is, you know, right next door. Right. Um, and then when I stopped coming back, I had to go through Roswell, like, had to
1: nice uh, just just mm. for
2: just for the lols. and that town is incredible. Like they have little alien head lamps, and <laughs> you know the the Mickey D's is oh sorry McDonald's is in the shape of a UFO, and they're just it's a whole different culture um, down there about uh, the possibilities and answering the burning question of are we alone? And I mean I don't think that the aliens that are projected in Roswell would be around. Um, Mm -hmm. I think, I mean, the sun is such a boring star (laughs) in terms of it's such a normal, like, it is the sneens of, uh, sorry, sneens being, you know, dad, jeans and, and uh, New Balance sneakers sort of thing. It's just the most uh, planned
0: translation. <laughs> like
2: basic basic bay star that you can have and mm. looking, at the, looking at the abundances of the chemical makeup of the sun too, it's a very sort of typical star and so there really isn't anything special in terms of what separates the sun from every other star out there in terms of, you know, is there something special that, and, and that's the reason why we're here. I think it's just a sheer amount of time for civilizations to develop the technology or even um, Western civilization is very keen on tech and very keen on progressing beyond belief and uh, maybe to the detriment of of its own environment right yeah. and there might be civilizations <laughs> <Starling>. <laughs> don't even get me started on that <laughs> uh, no 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 fine no no we're not gonna talk about space Karen on the on the podcast mm-hmm. um, and you know there are plenty of amazing civilizations here on on earth that didn't really rely. that didn't need tech in order to you know go about their day to day life and have a fulfilling, yeah. um a fulfilling life here. And so that's something that I've been thinking about a lot recently. Is there might be loads of alien civilizations out there, and you got to think about the fact of where, where the result of four point five billion years of evolution too, right? Mm-hmm. um And we've only been communicating for the last. Hundred odd years, and so that's a blip, an absolute blip. And so, you know, there's a lot of talk about how long civilizations, technological civilizations that are radiating their presence out last for. Um, but there could be loads of alien civilizations out there that are just happy sitting on their own rock doing their thing and they're chill. And so, that, yes, <laughs> they're
0: out there, but they haven't been here, is what you're saying. No, well,
2: basically. I mean, I don't, I don't, um, in my opinion, the likes of crop circles and, and probing and, and all the rest of it are very far fetched in terms of if you are ever traveling light years just yeah. to pull some pranks, like what is that like what is Honestly, that serving
0: though? I mean depending on how fast they can actually get here and how bored they are. True. Yeah, do the same thing. True.
2: Maybe they're just teenage aliens, right? They're like, All right, we're gonna go on graffiti no, just this, going for this. A joyride.
0: They stole yeah. their dad's flying saucer and they're like, Let's go, let's go mess exactly. with some cows. It'll be hilarious.
2: Let's go probe some people and, you know, let's have some fun. Oh, yeah. Um, That's what I would
0: do if I was an alien.
2: Um, (laughs) Well.
0: Or alternatively, they have been here and they kind of, like, got off and looked around and they were like, ugh.
2: Right. (laughs) I'm back on.
1: (laughs) 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 No, thanks. off.
2: (laughs) However, so the likely, I think the likelihood of, um, the likelihood of species like our own out there, I mean, we are just one of hundreds of billions of planets in our own galaxy. Let alone the hundreds of billions of galaxies within our own universe. So, I think even just a numbers game, there's surely to be uh, there's sure to be life out there that sort of resembles our own. However, what's really exciting is that if you think about sort of microscopic life, we actually think that microscopic life may even exist within our own solar system. Which oh, is
0: oh yeah, wasn't there something on Mars? They so there's we there's so.
2: there's salt lakes underneath the surface of Mars that there potentially could be some some life there. There's also a lot of water on Enceladus, and mm-hmm. actually more. Uh, so Enceladus is a moon of of Saturn, and uh, there's actually more water underneath the surface of Enceladus than there is here on Earth. Um, oh, wow. And so, there's some really cool research going on in terms of, uh, so what's amazing is that there's water there, which is what we think is essential for life. And there's also, due to the fact that how close it is to Jupiter, it, the sort of, the, uh, the world, as it were, uh, sort of stretches in and out due to the gravitational tug of Jupiter. So, you have some heat, you have water. Um, and so, there's teams sort of thinking about, okay, well, how do we sort of, uh, melt through the ice get a little submarine in there and have a little have a little gander and see what's see what's in there and so I think the possibilities for microscopic alien life in our own solar system is actually a lot higher than what we thought it was maybe 30 30 odd years ago um, and Europa is another great great example um, oh, yeah. and Titan is a world that has an atmosphere and it rains and um, there's all types of really cool surface topography as well however it rains um, methane because mm-hmm. methane is it's cold enough out there for for it to have sort of a, a water cycle but instead of with uh, h2o it's with with methane which is absolutely wild um and again i think it's really hard for us to try and to quant to quantitatively Discuss this when we've only rolled the dice once on how life has come to be and what are the right conditions for life. I mean, if you have a look at the range of conditions that humans can live in, and it's quite pathetic uh, when you consider tardigrades and just how bloody hardy those those things are. And they lived on the moon. They're, they're just amazing. They're absolutely yeah. just the hardiest creatures that we've come across. <laughs> and if you have them, which can exist in, you know, basically every crevice there is in, on this planet, it's crazy. It's, it's wild to think that life can exist in the conditions that tardigrades thrive in, right? And we found that plankton on the surface of the international space station where it's just been imagine that ride like just been sitting on the surface of the of the ocean and all of a sudden this current sort of drags you up into space and you get a free trip um and yeah the fact that we've found plankton on the surface of the ice i think and that's not to say that uh sorry what am i trying to say so we know that there are very extreme conditions that life can exist on here on earth um, what would be really fascinating is if we do find life in our own solar system, that would be a game changer, right? Yeah. However, I think mm-hmm. it'd be even more of a game changer if that life is independent to our genome. Like we know that there's a common ancestor throughout all the living beings here on Earth. And if you look at the DNA of, of this alien life and it's completely, <laughs> completely alien compared to the likes of us, then we can say that there's even more amazing conditions out there that life can actually form and develop. If it's the same, mm. uh, if we sort of came from the same ancestor, that's probably still cool, but that sort of that still limits the possibilities. So I'm excited either way. I think the possibilities are absolutely endless, and the fact that you have these awesome missions like Tess. Um, we're discovering all sorts of weird and wonderful worlds and I think to be honest it's just a matter of time. Mm-hmm. I mean we still haven't found a planet like our own just in terms of mass and size, letting known um the right atmospheric components, and I think it in turn you have to think about how special this place truly is and respect Mother Earth as as we should and as she deserves. Um, because there is no, there is no planet B, after all, and really? the fact that we have this sort of uh, zealous approach to going to Mars and, ha- um, you know, going to the Martian theater and enjoying life—no, that's just not <laughs> going to happen. The amount of radiation that's bombarding the surface of Mars means that yeah. you are probably going to be spelunking for for your for the rest of your life. Which, I mean, you know, living in caves is kind of cool, but um, it's not really the life that people are promoting or envisioning on, on Mars. Um,
0: It'd be kind so, of just like living in, I don't know, like Vegas like, or no, no like, a, like outside <laughs> of Las Vegas, that really long stretch of just like desert road where there's nothing. I feel like it would just be that forever on Mars.
2: Yeah. 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 Right. And so I think it's amazing that, you know, we're contemplating going there and, and exploring Mars and seeing if life could have, or is life there or, um, where the conditions right for life to exist on on Mars, uh, eons ago, I think is amazing. But it's definitely not the the escape ticket to being like, all right, well, we're trashish place, alright Let's go, let's go find another world. Like, it's just no, no. Did Wally teach us
0: nothing? Right. Exactly.
2: Exactly. <laughs> so we really need to look after, and you can do both. You can protect our own planet whilst whilst um, being an interplanetary species. So mm-hmm. they're not mutually exclusive, but I think it's really important to going back to our own planet and knowing how special that is and making sure that we're looking after it as best we can.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, totally. I could literally talk about aliens with you guys for hours, Um <laughs> But I do want to kind of throw this back on you, Jake. Um, I want to talk about kind of your science communications background, um, and this doesn't necessarily have to do with science communications. This is just a general all-around question. But uh, what would you say is your proudest achievement in your career so far? Wow. Yeah, I know it's a big question, but oh, really? I think I, I had think one to ask. Should do it. I think you should do it. <laughs> <laughs> Some of your whole career in three words. Go.
2: Yeah. <laughs> uh, one wild ride. <laughs>
1: <laughs> nice. I, I love
2: that. <laughs> I mean, so I, the environment that I grew up in, I knew no one in my general social group that even finished high school. Um, the people that I was surrounded by were either unemployed or they had like really hard, um, labor intensive jobs or they worked in factories and I knew no one that even finished high school, let alone go off to do university. And I, I'm really humbled by my journey and, um, to be the first person in my family to finish high school, to, to go off and to be awarded a Fulbright scholarship to actually go to America and and study my, my love and, and passion. And to, to be able to do this for a living is an absolute privilege. Um, and I've never regretted it for a single second. And every, every moment I've still looked back and, uh, everyone looks at success as very linear. Um, You know, oh wow, you know, they've, they've had a pretty cool time, but I actually failed high school. I had to repeat uh, my uh, senior year again. Um, I got told in my first year of uh, undergrad that I should probably study something else from the head of astrophysics um, at that time, because my grades weren't, weren't good enough. And the fact that, I have contributed to the discovery of over 20 planets since started my PhD um, whoa, the whoa, when I've,
0: were you gonna mention that <laughs> <laughs> or have you already <laughs> uh,
2: I think I did I think I, I yeah maybe I maybe I just glossed over it um, is
0: No, that's that's a pretty big deal let's wow right <laughs> let's just dwell on that for a moment
2: is is amazing the fact that I've contributed to knowledge that, will be used for, for generations to come. Um, you know, the fact that I've, I've worked with my childhood dream, uh, the childhood dream of working with, with NASA and helping them with their mission is, is absolutely incredible. And I'm just really grateful. I think I'm just really grateful for every experience that I've had that has led me to this point. I, I didn't actually get into the grad program that I wanted to get in, And as a result, I actually did that master's as, not as a stopgap because it was just such a powerful thing, but uh, all right, well, I've got to think about what else I want to do. And I've definitely had moments during my study where I was like, oh, well, um, am I really good enough and should I be here? But, you know, I've, I think in my PhD have helped co-author about 22 odd different papers um, led to two papers of my own. Um, with the third one going through peer review now. And it's, 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 it's amazing. And, and you have to pinch yourself and be like, wow, this is this is cool. But I think the pinnacle of it was assisting in the discovery of a planet known as AU-MIC-B. And at the time, it was actually one of the youngest planets to ever be discovered. Um, it's, it's only 20 million years young, uh, which in the grand scheme of things is a very baby planet and what's wild is that we think that planets form in disks of dust and gas and this uh lane of dust and gas within this a planetary disk is sort of st- extends beyond the orbit of pluto if this planetary system was in our own um however this actual planet is closer to its star than mercury is and so it's it was this huge like wtf moment yeah. of like how did this planet get here being <laughs> being so young and it was so wild in fact that it was a nature paper um which for everyone listening is like the 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 journal to put your your research in and nasa thought it was so cool that they actually created a poster like they have sort of horror theme posters uh, i know what you're talking
1: about um, oh, we actually, have those in our house i have one in my Heck office yeah. it's yeah. uh
0: it, it's the roasted planet uh-huh
2: <laughs> Yeah, it's it's, it's a, I think a... it's called the Flames of uh, Fury or or something like yeah. that. Yeah. And for someone who had like all these posters, I mean in my, in my teenage years it was most, mostly just band posters. Um mm-hmm. <laughs> but you know, having growing up and fantasizing about different different planets or you know just fantasizing about space in general and for that to come full circle where NASA has designed a poster about a planet that I helped discover. <laughs> I literally so went to a cool. print. As soon as that came out, I went to, um, our local like office printing station, printed that, got that printed out, framed it that day. Oh. Um, and yeah, I think that Christmas i got my parents, uh, I did the exact same for my parents, um, as like a thank you for helping me get to where I am today, but that's wild. That is absolutely that's like a f- uh, come full circle sort of foot sort of moment. And yeah, I, I literally have just, a
0: poster that your work inspired uh, hanging on the wall in my office right now. So that's cool. Yeah, that's so cool.
2: <laughs> it's wild, and the fact yeah. that people, you know, I, I hope that those po- I mean, and they do. They inspire people to to think about our place within. Within the universe, and maybe that might spur someone on to learn learn more about it in a professional professional setting. Yeah. it's it's really really cool. It is really really cool, and like the the fact that I got a Fulbright scholarship was was incredible, and the fact that I got to go over to America and study and all of it it's just been such an incredible journey, and and I'm very very grateful for for it all.
1: That is so cool. Um, we have one last question for you. But before um, we ask that question, um, you mentioned your Fulbright and how you came here to study and everything. Um, And I wanted to link that up because you actually have another connection at Lowell Observatory. Um, So when you were here, you went and spoke at Williams College, right? Because uh, you worked with one of the professors there. Uh, Well, one of our educators, Peter, he actually went to Williams and he went to your talk in January and he wanted me to tell you hello for him.
2: That was one of the coolest moments of the entire trip um, (laughs) over in the States was the fact that so my uh, PhD supervisor, my principal supervisor, uh, Rob Wittenmeyer, he went to Williams College to do his undergrad and Uh, he goes over there does like a winter school and I was over in the same country he's like hey look go come over do a guest guest um lecture and I thought this is amazing like I've never seen snow before not like that so that was awesome to go up there and um I just did like a guest talk about my research and what I was doing and then when I was in the uh Pluto dome and I was like wow this is the telescope that helped discover Pluto like this is so freaking cool. And I was speaking to, to Peter mm-hmm. um, and I'm like, oh, yeah, just um, just finishing up my dissertation. And he's like, oh, yeah, where are you, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, I'm over in Australia finding plants. I was like, oh, well, we have a professor. Uh, he, did, he was doing like this guest thing in, in Massachusetts where I've, where I've been studying. Um, this uh, like, you know, it's winter course and that was amazing. And he was from mm-hmm. Australia. I'm like, huh. And the dots like connected pretty quickly. Yeah. (laughs) That was, that was so cool. I was with my partner and like, I was smiling from ear to ear and she was like afterwards, like that was one of the most wholesome moments I've had in my life. And (laughs) that's so cute. I, I got, I got a photo with, uh, with, with Peter. Oh, Um, good. Yeah. yeah, he's
1: like my best friend in the whole world. And I told him that we were getting you on the podcast and he was like, I know him. <laughs> he was like, I went to his talk.
2: It was, yeah, that, that was amazing. And he's <laughs> he's a really, really cool dude. And mm-hmm. yeah, that was, that was wild. That was absolutely wild. And I've sort of had little interactions like that throughout my life as well as a science communicator and as a, um, as an astronomer. I think one of the coolest interactions like that was I was also back in America, uh, the first time I was there, and I was in a little, I was in an elevator in the hotel room that sorry in the hotel I was staying at, and this uh, dad uh, is by himself, and he's like, "Are you a geologist?" And I'm like, "No, I'm uh, and no, why is that?" He's like, "Oh, you dress like a geologist." <laughs> I'm like, i don't know whether that's a compliment or not um i'm like no I, i'm actually i'm an astronomer and he's like and his eyes just sort of lit up and he's like oh Aww. my god um i'm really sorry i know that you've seen that you've just arrived but my son loves astronomy um Aww. can you can you like chat to him i'm like all right, just give me five minutes to just like sort myself out. And I just came mm-hmm. back from a conference, so I had like a whole bunch of stickers and whatnot. So I gathered them up and oh. uh, to hand to him. And this little oh. fella, I think he was about eight or nine, and he made this little handmade booklet that he stapled himself, and it was all the different planets that he likes, and he's ranked them in terms That's of his favorite so and its name and how big they are, and he's drawn each individual one. And I was just blown away, and so we had this. I had this really cool interaction uh, with him, um, with the whole family, and I'll never forget that. And it's those types of moments that I've had, also doing science communication, and and that's that's what I do it for. It's those moments where hopefully that leads someone to go further and just be more curious about the world around them. Not everyone needs to be a scientist or an engineer or, or whatnot, but I think, you know, just having a greater appreciation of the world around us. And again, going back to what I was saying before about skill building, giving people the skills that they, that they need in order to to think for themselves in order to make, make their lives as, as best as they can. Um, and to live up to the potential that they, they have and they, and they want to fulfill.
0: That's a perfect transition into our final question. Um, what advice would you give to someone who wants to go into your field of study? Um, so, people like that little boy and his little booklet and his dad who roasted you. In, <laughs> well, not. No, see, why it's good is because you don't know if it's good or bad and you're just left thinking about it for the rest of the day. And that's.
2: Or for the rest of your life.
0: Or for the rest oh, of yeah. your life. You lie awake at night. I'm sorry. And that's my question for you. <laughs>
2: Do I I lay awake at night still thinking if I dress like a journalist? Oh, my goodness.
0: I mean, (laughs) he he definitely clocked you as a nerd. He was just wrong about the kind of nerd.
2: Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And
0: nothing wrong with being a nerd. We love nerds. (laughs)
2: Um, I think just just be curious. Be curious. And um, if you're determined to – I think determination and commitment can – outlast so many different other qualities in, in a human being. And I think if you're really determined and motivated to, to go down this path, then do it. And, and and I think that's a general, a general statement of something that you, if you have, I mean, everyone has dreams, right? Dreams that they aspire to is that, yeah, if you have the motivation and the determination to, to go about it then i think that's about 95% of the way there um, in terms of astronomy and, and astrophysics i uh a lot of it is math based and i think r- nowadays astronomers and astrophysicists are just glorified computer programmers <laughs> and and so computer programming is essential to to what i do to what i do and so if you want to get into astronomy and astrophysics um starting coding as early as you can with will be a huge benefit to you and what's amazing about that is that there's so many free resources out there um i've just started learning a new language for my job and it's amazing what the likes of stack overflow and youtube can can teach you in terms yeah. of, in terms of that mm-hmm. and I think that's great about the world that we now live in is that just such... You, the wealth of knowledge that's that you can have access to and the amount of free knowledge that you have access to is is amazing. Um, and yeah, I think if my story has taught me anything is that spite is a very powerful motivator. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> True.
2: Um, I can trust to that. <laughs> I think just practice practicing things, working and just working hard. Um, and I know that sounds like a bit of a cop out, but I've definitely had to, things definitely haven't come easy on on my end. And I was working, I think like three jobs at one point during my undergrad just to get through. Um, and yeah, I think if you're determined to get to a certain point, you'll get there. And I mean, there are people who are naturally gifted at, say, physics or, or math or, or anything like that, and um, I think there are other people that are really good at it because they just have worked hard and they keep practicing. And um, I've I was doing some painting with a friend of mine uh, a few months ago, and I mine looked like a, a elementary school doodle compared to compared to hers, and she's like, "Dude, I've been painting for the last like decades. Like, just chill. You've only just started." And I had this sort of realization of like, okay, this is is a skill that I need to just develop. And I think, you know, math and and physics and coding, I think you need to reframe from I'm naturally gifted at these things and into, okay, these are skills that I just need to work on and I need to improve upon. And I think if you have that sort of change in mindset of, you know, I might not be – I might not have the natural levels – I might be a level three in math, but I, it's a skill. Just is in, in in sort of gamify of like, all right, I need to get to to level four or level five, and then, you know, just build build yourself up from there. And uh, yeah, have have the sense, have the belief within yourself that you can do it, that you can achieve it, um, because there's a lot of people out there that will that will put you down and will throw you under the bus. But as long as within yourself that you can be, that you believe that you can get there, then then that's all that matters. But then also on top of that, having a support system around you instead of people throwing you under the bus that help lift you is incredibly, incredibly important. And I think that's one of the probably the most important parts, especially growing in your late teens and early 20s when you're still sort of finding yourself and working out what you want to do. And I mean, like we, we, we still have no idea what we want to do when we grow up, right? But I think having, <laughs> having a great... Um, bunch of mentors and a great community around you can help you significantly
1: i wish we had more time to talk with you i really do but we are like way over time i'm so so sorry oh no don't don't be be sorry sorry. i mean we're just as much to blame you know (laughs) um but yeah, so thank you so much for coming. I had a great time talking to you. I hope you had a great time talking to us as well. And I sure
2: uh, did. Thank you so much <laughs> having me.
1: Of course, and to all of our listeners out there, I would like to remind you that we have a Discord channel and a Twitter where you can see some cool behind-the-scenes content, um, and you can use the hashtag, hashtag AskStarStuff, or shoot a tweet over to StarStuffPod to ask us any questions you might have about life, the universe, and everything. So, uh, yeah, thank you so much for being on here, Jake. I'm glad we finally got this uh, set up and recorded.
2: Thank you so much, Haley and Maddie, that was amazing. Your questions were great and I'm sorry that I can be super elaborate and sometimes. No, worries. no we
0: love that. It gives We love it. It gives Nate more more fun stuff to edit.
2: <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Nate. He
1: loves us. Awesome. All right. Thanks, everybody. Bye.
0: This podcast was made possible by our members and donors. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support our nonprofit in making more digital education like this available, go to lull.edu donate. Thanks for listening.